middle of September already. Don't groan too, too hard. Uh, snow is months away still. <laughs> we'll be praying for that. But what's not months away, it's minutes away, is a new sermon series called How Stuff Works. And uh, it's probably based off of the famous TV series of How Stuff Works. And to tell you my favorite How Stuff Works episode, it's the ice cream sandwich shop. How they make the ice cream sandwich. I love that stuff. It's so good. This is, it's such a great show. I can watch many of them all at once. And so uh, that's what we're going to be doing with the book of Colossians. is talking about how stuff works uh, in, through the book of Colossians. So let's pray and let's get into how stuff works. Father, we thank you so much for connect groups and the opportunity we have to connect with one another. Lord, I ask for boldness this morning. Lord, I ask for for us to make a decision now to attend a connect group. Lord, I ask that you would push us, Lord God. Press us into this community, Lord God, and and connection in your name, Jesus. Lord, we just pray for Tom. We ask that the words he would speak to us through, through this series of How Stuff Works would teach us better how our faith works in your name. Amen. Amen. Did you ever wonder how stuff works? In this series on Colossians, we'll learn about how some things work, uh, like redemption. That's today. That's part one. We're going to learn how redemption works. Uh, part two, we'll learn about how the church works. Part three, baptism. How does baptism work? Love is part four. How does love work? Part five, how does peace work? And part six will be, how does marriage work? And it all comes out of the book of Colossians. We call Colossians a book. In reality, it's a letter. It's written by the Apostle Paul somewhere around 60 A.D. during his imprisonment in Rome. He wrote it to the church in Colossae. It's the 51st book of the Bible. It contains four chapters, 95 verses, 1,998 words, all in the KJV, of course. And as we begin today, I want to welcome our live stream audience. We're thankful people unable to attend will be able to watch the sermon, either live or later at your convenience. Others can watch it again, and I'm sure many of you will go back and watch this again. You can forward it to a friend who will benefit, and and we can share it. You'll see it on our Facebook feed, and and you can share it. That's the key. If you want other people to see it, and that's the big question, you, you share it. Liking it is good. Commenting is better. Sharing it is best. You can do the whole trivecta. But sharing it is best. And even more important, as far as live streaming goes, is it, I believe it will give people who have never been here a glimpse into who we are and, and what we believe. And if that's you out there in, in live stream land, I think you'll find that we're pretty normal. <laughs> At least we understand that we're not better than anyone, that's for sure. We just know we need Jesus. And we're all on a journey, and and we at Central Assembly, somewhere along the line, figured out it's better to journey together. And so we invite you to join us. Live stream is great, and I'm glad that we have it, but you do miss out 
on some things by not being here. You miss the personal connection that we believe is so essential to a healthy life. Uh, you miss out on amazing worship and an amazing worship team that knows how to lead us into the presence of God via the vehicle of music. And you miss out on an opportunity to be prayed for. Virtually every service we provide a chance for your need to be brought before the very throne of God. Livestream is great. It will broaden our reach for sure. It will bring the gospel to those unable to hear any other way. It will give new people a window into who we are at Central Assembly. All of that is good. But it will never and it can never replace the experience of being in the house. Can you say amen to that? So welcome to our new live stream audience. And now on to part one of our series, How Stuff Works. While you're turning to the book of Colossians, chapter one, uh, I want to begin each of our sermons, six-part series, with a 60-second video of how something works. And today, uh, in apropos fashion, we will learn how live stream works. So let's go to the videotape. The tech pastor here at Central Assembly, and I'm here to tell you how live streaming works. We have live streaming here starting this Sunday at Central Assembly on our Facebook page. In the back of the room right now, there's a camera with a chip in it. That chip senses light and makes a code and sends that code to a little box that's sitting on the desk. That desk then takes those code, that code from that chip, transcribes it or changes it so that Facebook can understand it and uploads it to Facebook. So there is a difference, just so you know, between uploading and downloading. See, when you normally surf the web and you're doing what you're doing normally, you're doing a lot of downloading. Here, as we live stream, we're uploading, we are putting something on the internet together. Once the code is uploaded to Facebook, we can now search Facebook for our website or our Facebook page here at Central Assembly. Once you find that, you scroll down and you start to see a video. What's happening there is that the server is downloading uh, the data, the numbers to your computer and your computer is then converting those numbers into actual pixels that are on the screen and telling those pixels what color to be. And all that, all of it happens in less than a couple seconds. So that's how live streaming works. Colossians 1, 12 through 16 says, and remember we're talking about redemption, that's the topic today. Verse 12 says, giving thanks unto the Father, which has made us meet, M-E-E-T. Now the word meet means suitable. Back in the book of Genesis, it says Eve was a help meet. A lot of people misread that as helpmate. It really says help meet. And the word meet means suitable. She was a help suitable. So God made us suitable, that verse says, to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints who has delivered us, verse 13 says, from the power of darkness and has translated us into the kingdom of his dear son in whom we have redemption. That's, that's what we're talking about today. Through his blood, even the forgiveness of sins, who is the image of the invisible God, 
the firstborn of every creature, speaking of Jesus. For by him were all things created that are in heaven, that are in earth, visible and invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created by him and for him. Today, we look at how redemption works. By definition, redemption is the act of buying something back. Redemption is paying a price or a ransom to return something to your possession. Redemption is the English translation of the Greek word apolytrosis, which means to ransom in full. Redemption. In ancient times, it often referred to the act of buying a slave. It carried with it the the meaning of freeing someone from chains or prison or from slavery. And when you're redeemed by Jesus, that's exactly what happens, isn't it? Jesus purchases you. Jesus purchases me. And we're rescued from bondage. We're liberated from captivity. We are unshackled. My chains are gone, as the song says. I've been set free. He takes my chains and he he takes my addiction. He takes my sin and my bondage and offers instead freedom and liberty in ways that we have never experienced. We are bought back by Jesus. We are redeemed. The New Bible Dictionary gives this definition. Redemption means deliverance from evil by payment of a price. The Christian use of redemption means that Jesus Christ, through his sacrificial death, purchased believers from the slavery of sin and set us free from bondage. We're also, interestingly enough, set free from the bondage of the law. And now we are free to experience a new life in him. Romans 10 and verse 4 says, Christ is the end of the law to everyone who believes. It was Jesus, the Son of God, who declared himself to be the Redeemer. In Matthew 10, 28, even as the Son of Man came not to be ministered unto, but to minister and to give his life a ransom for many. The Apostle Paul proclaimed Jesus to be the Redeemer as well. In a very familiar passage, at least the beginning of it, Romans 3, 23 and following, says, For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, being justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God has set forth to be a propitiation, great King James Bible word. And it means he was the appeasement. He was the placation. He was the mollification. He was the conciliation, the pacification. Through faith, it says, in his blood to declare his righteousness for the remission of sins that are past. Jesus was set forth as the propitiation. He was the appeasement between a holy God and sinful man. And the entire theme of the Bible, I think sometimes we miss this,
But the entire theme of the Bible is redemption. Biblical redemption centers on God. God is the ultimate redeemer. Saving his chosen ones from evil. Saving his chosen ones from from trouble, from bondage, and ultimately from death. Redemption is an act of God's grace by which he rescues and restores us. It's the common theme woven throughout the entirety of the Bible. Sometimes it's referred to as the scarlet thread of redemption. It started way back in the book of Genesis when God killed an animal in the Garden of Eden to make clothing to cover the nakedness of Adam and Eve after they sinned in Genesis 3. The skin of the animal provided by God, very important point, the skin of an animal provided by God was better than the human effort of fig leaves. It was, and it was the first blood ever shed on planet Earth. The scarlet thread emerged again a chapter later in Genesis 4 as Cain tried to offer his crops, but God demanded the blood of Abel's flock. The scarlet thread of redemption was the blood of a ram caught in the thicket as God spared Abraham's son Isaac in Genesis 22. It was the blood of the Passover lamb in Exodus 12 that spared the Hebrew slaves from judgment. And the scarlet thread of Joshua 2 hung in Rahab's window, spared her family from judgment, and was an echo still of the reverberating from the blood upon the windows and the doorpost of the houses of the Hebrews as the exodus unfolded. Every one of the countless temple sacrifices of the Levitical era, so prevalent in Jewish and biblical history, was an extension of the scarlet thread of redemption. Every animal slain, every drop of blood shed foreshadowed your redemption and mine. Leviticus 16, 15 and 16 says, Then shall he, speaking of the priest, kill the goat of the sin offering for the people and bring his blood within the veil and sprinkle it upon the mercy seat and before the mercy seat. And he shall make an atonement for the holy place because of the uncleanness of the children of Israel and because of their transgressions. We were kidnapped and we were held ransom by the powers of darkness. Jesus paid the ransom and bought us back. That's how redemption works. And throughout the Bible and in countless places, at virtually every turn, we find another example of the scarlet thread of redemption that runs through the pages of Holy Scripture. Hebrews 9.22 spells it out. All things are by the law purged with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. And it all culminates with Jesus. All the types and all the shadows of the Old Testament are fulfilled in the sacrificial death of Jesus Christ on Calvary's cross as He paid for our redemption. What can wash away my sin, the old song says? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make me whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Oh, precious 
is the flow that makes me white as snow. No other fount I know. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. It's Jesus who, according to our original passage, our text today, Colossians chapter 1, verse 13, it says, God the Father delivered us from the power of darkness and has translated us into the kingdom of His dear Son in whom we have redemption. How? By His blood, even the forgiveness of sins. It's in Ephesians. It says Jesus, chapter 1, verse 7, in whom we have redemption. How? Through His blood, the forgiveness of sins, according to the riches of His grace, wherein He is abounded toward us with all wisdom and prudence. Galatians chapter 3 says Christ has redeemed us. And remember, that's what we're talking about. We're talking about redemption. Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law being made a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone that hangs on a tree. And that's a reference to the cross. When you think about how redemption works, let me look at it in five steps. You know I like lists. Number one, we're sinners. Sin is defined as transgression of the law. There are 2,713 laws, statutes, and commandments found in the Bible. But the Ten Commandments are, are a good representative sampling. The Ten Commandments, are the, it's the top ten list of God's law. How are you doing there? Let's just forget the 2,713. Let's just think about the top 10 list for a minute here. How are you doing there? Have you ever told a lie? Have you ever stolen anything? Have you ever used God's name in vain? Have you always kept the Sabbath holy? Have you always honored your parents? Even murder and adultery are more a matter of the heart than the hands when you listen to Jesus teach in the Sermon on the Mount. So, if you're anything like me, you're 0 for 10 on the Ten Commandments. We're sinners. It all goes back to Adam and Eve. They introduced sin into the human race. Romans 5.12 says, Wherefore, as by one man, Adam, sin entered into the world, and death by sin, and so death passed upon all men, for all have sinned. That could have been the end of the story, you know. God could have blotted us out of existence. But instead, he opted for redemption. The first step in the process of redemption is understanding we are sinners. But God chose to buy us back from the grips of the devil. And to that end, number two, he sent Jesus into the world to become one of us. It's reminiscent of a story of a man walking with his son through a meadow. And one of them stepped into a large anthill. And his foot sunk deep into the sandy dwelling place, sending the ants into a panic and scrambling to preserve their very existence. And the little boy said, said Dad, you've got to do something. Dad, you have to fix this. Dad, help them. And the dad looked on helplessly at the tiny creatures and he said, Son, I can't. I'm too big. 
And in much the same way, God is too big to help us. His holy nature is not compatible with our sin nature. So he clothed his son in human flesh, and he became one of us. God sent Jesus, fashioned as a man, into the world to be our Savior. That's how redemption works. Number three, Jesus did not have a sinful nature, and he lived a sinless life. The Bible teaches in four separate places, the Bible says that the sins of the Father are passed on to, to the sons, to the third and the fourth generation. The sins of the Father are passed on to the third and the fourth generation. Jesus did not have an earthly father. He was conceived of the Holy Ghost. He was born of a virgin. His father had no sin. Therefore, Jesus had no sinful nature. It's no wonder the, the virgin birth is under attack these days. It's because it's crucial to how redemption works. Jesus also led a perfect life. He was tempted in every way, the Bible says, and yet without sin. And in so doing, he became the perfect sacrifice for our sin. That happened when Jesus, number four, offered himself on the cross for your sin and for mine. He became the fulfillment of all the animal sacrifices of the Old Testament. He became the culmination of the scarlet thread of redemption that's found throughout the Bible. It all pointed to him. It all pointed to Jesus. Our sin could not be forgiven until the righteousness of the law was satisfied. Our sin had to be paid for. Justice had to be realized. And so, Jesus died for you and for me. He provided atonement for our sin. The righteousness of the law was satisfied. And a holy God was propitiated. He was satisfied. He was appeased. He was placated. He was conciliated. The one who knew no sin became sin for us that we might be made the righteousness of God in Him. It was the substitutionary principle in action. Jesus died on the cross in our place and atonement became available to us. Now number five is important. We must accept the work of the cross as personal payment for our sin. The fact Jesus died makes redemption available, but we must intentionally receive it. This final step in the process of redemption is born out of John 1.12. As many as receive him, it says, to them he gave the power to become children of God, even those who believe on his name. Imagine a courtroom and, and the sentence is passed. Imagine you're found guilty and you're assessed a fine that's far beyond what you're able to pay. You're destined for incarceration until a voice from the back of the courtroom offers to pay your fine. But that's not the end of the story. The offer to pay your penalty gives you a choice where before you had no choice. The offer 
to pay your fine makes a way where previously there was no way. But it's still up to you. The offer of redemption doesn't redeem you. Let me say that again. The offer of redemption doesn't redeem you. It has just put the ball in your court. You can pridefully refuse the help. Or you can humble yourself and accept the price offered for your atonement. And that's the choice that we all have today. Some choose to to shake their fist at God and say, I don't need your help. Others fall to their knees and beat their chest and say, Father, forgive me. I'm a sinner. As many as receive him, the Bible says, he gives the power to become a child of God. You see, one of the great misconceptions that are out there is that we are all children of God. Simply not the case. We're all the creation of God. But Jesus told the Pharisees, and and remember the Pharisees are the religious guys, Jesus told them, you're the sons of your father, the devil. The reality is you become a child of God when you are adopted into his family. To as many as receive him, he gives the power to become children of God. That's how redemption works. First of all, it starts with recognizing that we're sinners. Then God sent Jesus to be the Savior of the world. Jesus was sinless, and that qualified him to pay for our sins. Then Jesus offered himself on the cross, and now I must receive the work of the cross as atonement for my sin. It's that personal. And so we have this window of opportunity available to us. It's called life. We don't know how long it will last. Hebrews 9.27 says it's appointed unto a man once to die. And then the judgment. I think sometimes we deceive ourselves into thinking we'll always have more time. It's simply not the case. I had the honor and the privilege of doing a memorial service at the Villa Marina a week ago yesterday for a co-worker of my daughter, Marie, 31 years old. She went to bed seemingly healthy and didn't make it to morning. A week prior to that, exactly a week prior to that, I had a spirited discussion with a 64-year-old man about the validity of the gospel and in particular, whether or not God loved him. 30 minutes after Rhonda and I left, He fell back over his chair in the very spot where we had our conversation and broke his neck. I visited him in the hospital the next day. He was on life support, and he died hours later. The window of redemption will not stay open forever. The Bible says, behold, now is the acceptable time. Today is the day of salvation. The redemptive work of Jesus on the cross gives us a choice. We can in vain attempt to gain heaven on our own or we can surrender to the one who died for our sins that we might live and not perish. 
But one day the offer will expire. Either you will die or the world as we know it will end. Luke 21, 27 and 28 says, And then shall they see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. And when these things begin to come to pass, look up, lift your heads, for your redemption draweth nigh. That's how redemption works for those of you in live stream land. And that's how redemption works for those of us here in the sanctuary at Central Assembly. And so we confess our sins. We acknowledge we've fallen short. We've missed the mark. We have transgressed the law. We accept the work of Christ on the cross and we begin to live for Jesus. We repent of our sin. That word means to turn from. We turn from our sin. We become a new creation and we pass from death to life. We're made new. We're born again. We're redeemed. We're purchased by the blood of the sacrificial lamb. Fulfills the words of John the Baptist in John 1.29. When he saw Jesus walking toward him, he said, Behold the Lamb of God who taketh away the sin of the world. It was the scarlet thread of redemption. And that's where we find ourselves today. The offer is on the table. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him would not perish, but would have everlasting life. That's how redemption works. Lord, I pray for my brothers and sisters here today. And I pray for those that are listening via the live stream. Lord, I pray that you would hearken unto their consciousness the reality of their sin. We've transgressed the law. We've fallen short. We've missed the mark. And a holy God is not, his nature is not compatible with the sin nature. And so that holy God must be propitiated. He must be appeased. He must be conciliated. And that happens as we receive the work of Jesus on the cross. The price was paid. The righteousness of the law satisfied. Our fine was paid. Our penalty paid. And now to as many as receive him, he gives the power to become a child of God. That's my hope and my prayer for you is that you would know Jesus as your Lord and Savior. That you would receive him. He will change you from the inside out. Make that your prayer. Say, Jesus, I'm a sinner. I know I'm a sinner. I know I've missed the mark. I know I've fallen short. I confess my sin to you now. I receive the work of Calvary as the payment for my sin. And now it's my heart's desire to begin to live for you. And if you pray that sincerely, God will change you. Begin to, to read his word. Make sure you find a good church that preaches the gospel to attend. And he will never, ever let you down. That's my prayer for you today. In Jesus' name.